from below um, something positive? Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, do the forms of political protest and strikes that, that I've just referenced resonate with you as, as potentially fruitful avenues for change? So, great. What you just heard were the remarks of Dr. Susan Ferguson, Associate Professor Emerita in Digital Media and Journalism at Wilfrid Laurier University. That was part of other remarks delivered at an event organized and hosted by the Arab American Educational Foundation Center for Arab Studies at the University of Houston and was held on February 2, 2023. It was a book launch discussion of the book Sisters in the Mirror, A History of Muslim Women and the Global Politics of Feminism by Dr. Elora Shehabuddin. I will post a link to the entire event, including the remarks of Dr. Kamran Asdar Ali, Professor of Anthropology, Middle East Studies and Asian Studies at UT Austin, which I did not air in this episode because of the time. I will post a link to the entire event on ArabVoices.net once it is published by the Arab American Educational Foundation Center for Arab Studies at the University of Houston, the organizer of this event. You've been listening to Arab Voices, originating on KPFT Houston and syndicated on other radio stations in different cities in the U.S. and Europe. Our shows are archived online and you can listen to them by visiting ArabVoices.net. And that does it for the show today. Thanks for listening. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Until we meet next week, peace on earth. Hi, I'm Jill Fritz with the Humane Society of the United States. And you're listening to KBOO Portland. The more compassion we have towards animals, the more compassion we're going to have towards other people. If you can value them all, you, you really value yourself as well. So even if you don't care about animals, the, the things we do that hurt animals end up hurting ourselves. It's almost kind of a dominion type issue where we feel we need to control everything. Dominion means stewardship, to take care of. What would a cow think about satisfying our habit? The challenge lies with looking at suffering from the perspective of the person or individual suffering. Good morning and welcome to the April episode of Voices for the Animals. My name is Michelle Coppola and I am very happy to be back after a long hiatus to bring you this monthly program where we give a voice to the issues affecting the other sentient non-human creatures with whom we share this planet. You know, Portland has long been known as a pet-loving place. We are frequently named as one of the best dog cities in the country, and we're known as a region with high adoption rates and a higher-than-average concern about animal welfare. That is in stark contrast to the flurry of media stories that have broken recently, alleging an ongoing pattern of mismanagement, negligence, and very poor animal care at the Multnomah County Animal Shelter, known as MCAS, located over in Troutdale. According to volunteers, former employees, and reports initiated by the Multnomah County Commission itself, the problems are extreme, and the pandemic only exacerbated those problems. Now, as a result of pressure from MCAS volunteers, local animal rescues, and the fact that the shelter actually had to close down for a week in January because of overcrowding and a lack of staff, the new Multnomah County Chair, Jessica Vega Patterson, announced a five-month full review of shelter operations on February 21st. 
This month, we are going to talk to Kelly and Amanda, two longtime MCAS volunteers who have been tirelessly advocating for the animals at the shelter for years. They have asked that their last names not be used in this broadcast. Next month, we will speak with Erin Grayheck, the newest director at Multnomah County Animal Services, to get her take on the problems at the shelter and the proposed solutions. Kelly and Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Kelly, we'll start with you. You've been volunteering at the shelter since about 2018, and you've really been among the most visible people when it comes to sounding the alarm about what's been going on at the shelter over the years. Can you tell me what some of the most concerning issues and problems are that you've seen? I guess a lack of transparency as far as what happened to dogs, their outcomes, and if they were adopted or put to sleep. Um, And then just consistent lack of medical care, um, reporting dogs for pain and um, seeing their pain not being treated was um, one of my big concerns. And then I also pretty early on heard management make comments after the 2018 audit that, you know, not to worry, we don't need to make any changes, we're already doing good enough. Um, And that kind of set off alarm bells for me because I'm like, you know, as a manager, I would hope you're striving to make things better and not just, you know, settling for where you're at when the shelter's been reviewed and several recommendations have been made. Um, And I just, I witnessed I witnessed those recommendations not taken seriously. I also remember at the very last minute, they were supposed to make sure to start giving the animals more enrichment, but I felt like it was kind of for show. Like one day they were like, okay, hand out Kongs. Let's take pictures of you giving them to the dog. They made this little wheel, the wheel of enrichment that they were supposed to spin and whatever activity it landed on, that would be the dog's enrichment for the day. Um, but that was put up at the very last minute and then it was never never used. used. It just sat there. Was your experience similar, um, Amanda? Yeah. I think once we started getting access to the dogs over on the intake side of the building and seeing that the conditions on the intake side of the building are different than the adoption conditions because the public sees the adoption kennel. So they're cleaner. Um, they get more consistent cleaning. And I had asked someone about that. And they're like, well, they're cleaner because that's what the public sees. And that was like, red flag. So you both mentioned that one of your biggest concerns was seeing animals not getting needed medical care or pain management. Can you describe some of those situations? So originally, the first thing I ever brought to the director of animal services back in, I think it was 2019, May of 2019, was a dog that was on the intake side with a nail embedded in their foot, bleeding, pulling around. Um, She had been an owner surrender. The impression I got was that they knew they were going to euthanize her. I knew her because she had been on the adoption for a long time. She was a nice dog, just in a bad environment in the home she was adopted out to, not appropriate for her. That's my opinion based on knowing her, interacting with her. But she wasn't being treated for pain. I could see on her medical board and I went and talked to the canine care specialist at the time. I'm like, this dog is limping, they're bleeding. And they're like, we're aware. And I'm like, but she's not being treated for it. So I would actually found a vet tech, brought them to the kennel and said, can you please look at this dog? And they're like, oh my goodness, let's get her on. And she was given, you know, pain medication less than 24 hours before she was euthanized, but she was there for four days without being treated for pain. My own dog, Penny, 
um, that I adopted this past summer when I got her adoption records. Um, the vet on staff when she, on intake had noted that she had two broken canines with the pulp exposed and she was there for four months and they never dispensed pain medication to her. And then just recently, you know, looking over records, there was another dog, Benny, that was there as recently as end of January that had, again, looking at the medical records, these are their own records that had a diagnosed eye issue that caused eye ulcers. And looking it up online, I can, I can read that it's a painful medical condition. And he was there from end of November until I believe he was adopted out in beginning of January. And again, his medical records don't indicate pain was ever treated. When you've brought your concerns up to the management of the shelter, what has the reaction been? What has been the response that you've received? So historically, when I brought my concerns up to uh, the past directors, I was always tried to approach it from uh, this can't possibly be on purpose perspective. I would say play dumb. <laughs> can't possibly be on purpose and to reduce any defensiveness over it. Help me see how this was an oversight. And I found I got a lot farther that way. One time I brought up a, a situation of neglect of, of care and I knew it wasn't an oversight because I had brought it to another employee's attention. They said they were aware of it. They just weren't doing anything about it. And the director really pushed, the former director really pushed that it was just an oversight, which was really frustrating. When I brought things to the current director's attention, um, I really appreciate her engagement and having a conversation over it, but it was um, unsatisfactory resolution. We really got to a point of, yes, we're working outside of a county code, but it is what it is. And that's where I think frustration is, is that when we hear about we're going to make changes. We're going to make it. We don't want these vague statements anymore. We want to hear about specific changes that are going to be substantial. They're going to be sustainable. And how are they being implemented and make sure they're being followed through on. I will touch on what Amanda said about the dog that wasn't treated with pain meds until the last minute. Um, I also reported that dog. She couldn't put weight on her foot. And another staff member was frustrated. She went through the medical board that we fill out to report medical issues to animal health. And she found that over the last month, it had been reported at least six times written out. And she was circling them and taking the clipboard to animal health and saying, hey, look, like nothing's been done. And this has consistently been reported. And it sounds like even by her doing that, it didn't do any good because then Amanda had to talk to a tech. It just boggles the mind why it took all of that to get this dog some help. Is it, it can't just be a lack of staffing, right? I know that a lack of staffing is a real thing, but I know that there are countless industries dealing with staffing concerns. And I don't think that it's just a lack of staffing. I think it's, maybe it's a lack of procedures. Maybe it's a lack of proper processes and checks and balances. I hate to think that it's just a lack of not caring, but I just think that it could be a combination of not the right processes, not the right checks and balances, some staffing concerns, but we're creating a culture where employees are really trying to put their best foot forward and do the best for the animals in their care. And again, there are employees there that are incredibly passionate about the animals in their care. But why this hasn't been consistent 
that's what confuses me. I really, I don't have an answer for that. So let's talk a little bit about the lack of past accountability since both of you have been volunteering for many years. Now, Deb Kafuri, the previous Multnomah County chair, told other local media that she was aware of the issues and directed that they be addressed, but she says that she trusted other people to get the job done and it wasn't. Let me ask you, you were around during that time. Did you ever see any improvements as the result of Chair Kafuri's directives? She never replied to my email when I reached out to her concerns. And we had spoke to County Com- Lori Stegman, a group of us volunteers back in the summer of 2019 about concerns. And she was nice enough to take a meeting with us and was very kind listening to our concerns. But again, nothing ever came of it. You know, I think there's been such a lack of accountability for so long that it's just become the norm. And I think that's why things, in my opinion, have just gotten worse and worse over time is because no one ever said, we need to do better. And I need you to show me how you're doing better. I need you to check in with me on regular intervals, showing me how you've made changes and what those changes are and what the outcomes of those changes are. No one's ever required that. So back in December, the shelter reached capacity. They had no more kennel space. They had very little staff due to COVID and, of course, very few volunteers as well. And the shelter reached capacity and they couldn't take animals anymore. So they closed the shelter to new intakes. And that is basically what made the new Multnomah County Chair, Jessica Vega Pedersen, get involved. She launched a five-month review of the shelter. And she says that there are definitely going to be some meaningful changes made even before the results of that review comes in because she understands that, you know, they can't necessarily wait. What I want to know is you were there at that time as volunteers. Can you tell me from your point of view what happened there and why you believe it got to that point? Um, I was so disappointed when we reached capacity in mid-December and management just didn't seem stressed at all. They were all on their vacations. They returned and were joking and laughing around while the few animal care staff who were there were drowning trying to take care of all these dogs. And I I really believe um, if they hadn't been forced to reopen by the county chair, this wouldn't have happened. You know, all of a sudden the county chair says you have to reopen and now they're like, oh, please help us. Like we desperately need volunteers. They wouldn't allow new volunteers for years. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. And then they wanted to say, you know, oh, it's because pets come in, get lost, you know, around New Year's the fireworks scares them. You know, if you work in animal rescue, you know to prepare for that. I think that's why, as volunteers, we struggle so much to trust them, that they are interested in making real changes, because we've really just heard a lot of excuses uh, that don't add up. Something that really bothered me was when we ran out of space in mid-December, we completely ran out of kennels on the adoption floor. Amanda, I know, sent an email to the social media guy, and he um, said he would have to get permission to make a little post letting people know we were at capacity because we're saying, like, we need to get the word out. There may be people who are on the fence about adopting or fostering, but if they know there's an immediate need, they'll come forward. Um, But he had to get permission for that. And it's just so typical as I, I just feel like instead of, making the public aware of issues and asking for help. It's more of nothing to see here. Everything's fine. But 
he got approval. He made a little post on the Facebook website and we received 60 application adoption applications. And for two weeks, not a single adoption application was processed. All those same animals just sat there. Because I knew someone who put in an adoption application during that time and didn't hear anything back for over a week, called to check on it. And they're like, well, if you don't hear back in two more weeks, then you can call and ask us about it. And they had ended up saying it was they were just too short staffed during those last couple of weeks of December to follow up on the pending applications. And it's one of those, it's, I think, not to cut Kelly off, and I apologize for interrupting, but it's this constant reactive nature versus proactive nature. If you know you're short on kennel space, why don't you send out a social media post saying, we need fosters, we need adopters, we need to make some kennel space before you're at that capacity? Why don't you send out notifications on social media before New Year's Eve? Here's how to keep your pet safe and prevent them from, you know, spooking to the fireworks. Keep them indoors. Here's some tips before New Year's Day. You know, it's that not being proactive. And when you know you're at kennel capacity, make staffing shuffles so that processing applications is a priority. You know, again, going back to a lot of industries are experiencing staffing shortages. It's that learning how to pivot and make things a priority so that you can reap the benefits of kennels opening up. It was kind of frustrating when this, we need help, big call goes out. And I'm like, we've needed help for years. We've needed more volunteers for years. We've needed you know, to more fosters for years. Why is it now this sense of urgency? Why hasn't it gotten the same attention in the past? Another serious issue that's been raised in previous years and in the more recent news coverage is that animals are going out of the shelter, not being spayed or neutered. Now, I understand, as I'm sure you do, that there is a serious ongoing shortage of veterinarians. The shelters had some difficulty staffing those positions, but they have apparently gone to a voucher system that has had pretty poor results, meaning very few people who adopt intact animals are actually getting their pets fixed. And of course, that results and more homeless pets. So seeing so many homeless animals come in day after day, this has got to be something that's really upsetting to you as volunteers, yes? I was really frustrated by that choice. And so I started looking into why are intact dogs being being adopted out? There's got to be some sort of code that the county animal services needs to follow around this. And I, I found that there is a county code written for animal services. And chapter, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, there's a section specifically around release at adoption, and it speaks to releasing fertile animals. And it says that the county needs to require sterilization of a fertile animal within 30 days or until sexual maturity, whichever happens later, and that a deposit should be collected at the time of adoption. um, And that if the animal is not uh, the owner doesn't come back with documentation that they performed the procedure and the animal is now sterile within 30 days, then that deposit is forfeited. And so I emailed the director about this and I said, why do we have a program place that's not meeting this county code or ordinance? And she said that she would send my email to the county attorney and we set up a, a meeting to meet in person. And we did about a couple weeks later. And she hadn't heard back from the county attorney, but when I when I spoke to her about it, 
You know, again, she's really open to conversations, which I really appreciate. She said, you know, I said, why is this voucher program operating outside of the county code? And I said, it seems like when it was rolled out that the county code, some you guys weren't aware of it. She's like, well, that's the county attorney's responsibility. And I said, again, it seems like whoever approved it wasn't aware of the county code. And so I heard back a couple weeks after that from the county attorney that my interpretation of the code was accurate and that they are not meeting the code of having animals rendered sterile within 30 days, but they're working towards that goal. They're trying to do more surgeries on site. And as far as the deposit, when I made that suggestion originally, she asked me what a deposit would be, which I, I thought was interesting. I you know other rescues use this for puppies that they can't sterilize yet. So you put a deposit down. And then when your puppy's of age, you have a voucher, you have them sterilized, you show proof of sterilization. When I finally heard back from the county attorney's response and from the director, it was that they just don't have a mechanism in place to collect a deposit and refund it. And again, I go back to, if you were aware of the requirements of the code, why weren't those put in place in the beginning before the voucher program was rolled out? Because as I mentioned to the director, you're just assuming that the people that you're adopting out to have the same priority around sterilization or ethical stance around sterilization. And clearly by the results that we we see being reported, that's just not the case. There's no incentive or, or, or mechanism in place to ensure better compliance. Yeah. I'm very concerned because just on opening day alone, I had three different individuals tell me they were interested in a dog that wasn't fixed because they could make a lot of money selling puppies. Okay, so there's also been allegations in the press of bad adoptions, meaning that pets are going to homes that are really not suitable for them. I'm thinking of one case in particular about a dog named Petey. Um, he was sick and then adopted out to a man who had no shelter whatsoever. So he was gonna be living outdoors while sick. Then that same dog got returned, was adopted out to a family with another dog, even though he had known dog aggression on his record. Um, ultimately, Petey lost his life because of what sounds like really bad adoptions on the part of the shelter. So before you answer this question, I do want to say, I feel the need to say that I know unhoused people love their pets and can be good pet parents. But when someone is obviously having difficulty caring for themselves in terms of food and shelter, there's got to be a balance, right? I mean, the shelter says they're trying to remove barriers to pet adoption for people. Can you tell me about some of your experiences with those adoption issues there? What is frustrating about removing barriers is that I think along with removing barriers, yes, provide services, provide food support, provide vaccinations, provide training support, help keep those pets in their home. But the dog or cat has no choice in where they end up. They're not choosing to live outdoors or indoors. They really have absolutely no choice. And so that means that the burden is on the adoption agency to put them in a safe environment that they can be properly cared for. I don't see it as discriminatory to look at somebody in a certain place in their life and say, you're just not in the position to care for this type of animal at this point in your life right now. That doesn't mean that you can't in the future, but at this point right now, you're not gonna be able to meet this pet's needs for shelter and care and food. And so we're just going to, we're just not gonna go through with an adoption right now. I I think that that is the responsibility of the adopting agency to put that animal's welfare first when adopting a pet out. A lot of our adopters, you know, um, 
thugs have been going home with houseless individuals and people who don't have a car. So it's just really crazy to expect people to follow through with the vouchers. Well, one, some of them don't even have an address, so the voucher can't even be mailed to them. Two, they don't have a car to get the dog to surgery and back to their location. And then three, if they're houseless, like that animal's going to just be laying like outside, like in the dirt with an incision. Those are really good points. And I wonder, are there just no formal adoption policies in place for staff and volunteers? I'm assuming volunteers show dogs as well. Do volunteers have any input with regard to adoptions? You know, we show dogs as volunteers and we've never had a written process in place for showing dogs to potential adopters. And as a trainer, that concerns me because Again, we have dogs with varying behaviors and varying sensitivities, and they're under a lot of stress. And we have volunteers with varying skill levels as well. And we've, we still don't have a written process in place for this is the best practices when you're showing an animal to potential adopters, when there's kids present, when there's not kids present. You know, what do you need to do to make sure that everyone stays safe and the pets stay safe? That's um, one of the main reasons. Another reason that we've lost a lot of volunteers too, is they've been mm -hmm. upset seeing dogs placed in bad situations and paying the ultimate price because of it when it could have been avoided if the shelter made more responsible decisions. I saw a dog that was fear so fearful in the kennels and a family was interested that was had children. I tried to talk to them about, this is not a good dog for a home with children, small children. I mean, this dog wouldn't even come to the front of their kennel. They'd stay in the back. Just very fearful body language. And then that dog was being shown by a staff member to the same couple. And I saw it, it's putting another dog away that I had just shown. And I saw the staff member holding the dog still by the collar, like almost pancaking on the ground, ears back, mouth closed. And they were holding it still so that the person could try to pet it and hug it. And I was like, good night, that dog is going to snap at somebody. And why isn't your staff member trained in a way to know that that dog is telling you in every way it can before it growls or snaps at you, I am incredibly uncomfortable and I need you to let go of this position. And I reported it to staff, but I was just, I was flabbergasted, A, that, that as a staff member there that you would think this was acceptable and that you would put a dog in that position just because you're trying to appease somebody in a dog show. Like, again, I might be naive, but I, I think the welfare of the animals needs to come first and not just moving dogs through a system, whether it's a good fit for them or not. There needs to be a balance between moving dogs through the system and making sure it's appropriate placements that we're setting them up for success. You know, the shelter has also been criticized for not having transparency when it comes to the rationales and policies regarding euthanasia. And I know there's got to be some frustration on the part of volunteers and also some staff members, I'm sure, with regard to the fact that the record keeping around euthanasia has really been lacking. Can you speak to that? And if you've had experiences with dogs just disappearing and not being able to find out exactly what happened to them? That's a huge issue. I would actually say that's the number one reason people have gotten discouraged and quit. I know I've talked to one of the animal care managers 
about the importance of letting us know, you know, if um, a dog is on the euthanasia list, um, giving us a heads up. And he said, you know, oh, like, that's too time consuming. And I personally told him, you know, I pointed out specific dogs like, hey, if this dog isn't going to make it, like, can you let me know? Mm -hmm. And he'll say, oh, sure. And then, you know, he'll walk right past me and not tell me that they've decided to put a dog to sleep. Um, when he knows, I would like to know. I know Amanda reached out in the past, um, knowing one of our long-term dogs who had been there for over a year wasn't going to make it. And she sent out, sent an email asking, like, could she take him, like, home for the night or on an adventure beforehand or and just never heard a response. So, um, and then we have another volunteer. I feel terrible for him. He um, was one of the only volunteers that came in to walk this dog named Tron, who was there for about three years. And- Three years. This dog was tied up in a court case. Um, oh. So the county hadn't won custody, but as soon as they won custody, then, you know, they decided to euthanize. But it was so heartbroken, breaking because Tyler just showed up to walk Tron and they were told you can't walk him like we're putting him to sleep right now. I just think it's such a disregard for volunteers who put their heart and soul into helping these animals. And I know for a fact, nobody cared more about that dog than Tyler. And he had the right to know that was coming. And maybe even comfort that dog. Yes, I have asked for this several times. Like here, you know, I recently fostered a dog and I wasn't sure if he was going to make it. And I said, I, I want to foster him. But if we decide he is animal aggressive and he needs to be put to sleep, I'm, I won't argue with you on that. But I just want to be able to be present with him. And I was told they don't like to do that because it's too hard. For the person putting the dog to sleep. Okay. And I'm like, what about the foster person who has a relationship with this dog? And also, what about the dog's well-being? And I just would hope the person that is putting a dog to sleep, like, would want that for them, would want them to have a, a yeah. person that the dog, you know, has a connection with there with them to make it a better experience. The dog's um, probably going to be calmer. Oh, yeah, for you know, sure. You know, for sure. And it makes it easier on them. It's very sad because we're not even allowed to give them last meals. Um, I guess it has to do with at Multnomah County, I'm told they're just given a sedative and a pill form in the morning. And so you can't, they don't get any breakfast, nothing that day because oh, we're told that it could interfere with that. And they also, um, many times they just, they do it in the dog's kennel. We don't have like a nice peaceful room, um, but they'll just go into that dog's kennel. And I'm like, I would just love the opportunity to be able to come in and take those dogs on a walk in the morning or just do something. And there's just no interest mm -hmm. in doing things more humanely because I know I'm not against euthanasia. Sometimes it's the most merciful thing you can do. I feel it breaks my heart here because I know it's not a peaceful experience that it could be for the dogs. As we wrap things up here, I want to know, do either of you have anything that you feel the need to say to people who are listening, who really care about the welfare of pets and animals in our community? If they want to make sure that this time around, real sustainable and lasting changes made at our county shelter, what do they need to do? I personally would say they need 
to speak out to our commissioners and demand that they follow through with real change and not just promises of it. It's very upsetting to read um, one of the articles in the Oregonian about just how many times our county commissioners have been told about ongoing problems and they've turned a blind eye. And I really think until they get public pushback, things just aren't going to change. So they need to know that our citizens here in Multnomah County care about the animals there and want to see change. But um, if they're not hearing that from enough people, I just, I don't see things getting better. I would agree with Kelly. I think the best thing the public can do is to hold the county commissioners accountable and let them know that this is important to them.